Hey, hey, we're back at it. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I am Damon. I am Kiss. And we are back here doing what we do, reshaping the culture of our city and beyond for the more liberatory and creative. Daniel, how you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Um, we're smack dab in the middle of election season here in Chicago, um, and we begrudgingly dragged ourselves into the fray. A couple of weeks ago, you heard our conversation with Brandon Johnson, who's a mayoral candidate. And on this episode, we go uh, back to the home team, one of the few figures in the electoral space here in Chicago, who both Damon and I and the movement overall have really like built trust, relationship, and you really see as like one and the same. Um, it's our great joy to have Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez of the 33rd Ward back on Ergo. This is a great conversation. We laugh, we cry, we learn. We learned a lot about our municipal infrastructure, how governance Which works. Which sounds is. boring. It sounds boring. But it was, the absurdity it of how Chicago works <laughs> means that really it's hilarious. So if you want some good municipal infrastructure laughs, you came to the right place. And, and to intentionally pull some language from some of our other work, you know, just a little, little bit of evidence and results uh, from a, an important experiment of what it looks like for, you know, a movement contingency to attempt to engage institutional power and to utilize some of the instruments of government to actually care for people and to build stronger movements. You know, the conversation gets personal as Rosanna is somebody we, you know, are close to and appreciate deeply and has come through for us. Uh, we also go back to some history on the island of Puerto Rico and talk about what the campaign has looked like now, what support has looked like, what opposition has looked like, and some of the learnings and opportunities that are ahead of us. We also talk a lot about treatment non-trauma, which is an ordinance and in many ways a movement uh, and campaign that has existed across the city. We've been talking about it a lot recently on the show, especially as we talk about this electoral space. Um, we'll put in the show notes a few episodes ago, right before there was a referendum about it on the ballot in November. We did a deep dive on that. Um, but Rosanna has really been a major champion, pushing it forward from a demand of movement to a policy proposition on the table for the city. You can find out more about and support her re-election campaign at rosanna433.org. If you know folks in that ward, which is around Albany Park and the area around that, make sure you pass this their way so that they're an informed voter come election day on February 28th. Also, by the time this comes out, early voting will have been open in Chicago, so make sure you uh, find the way to vote that's easiest for you if you do choose to vote in this election. All right, with no further ado, let's get to our conversation with Rosanna Rodriguez. Here we go. All right. We are here. It is still the election season of 2023 in this wonderful and sometimes unwonderful city that we call <laughs> Chicago. And we are here with one of our favorite people, certainly someone from our movement community that has stepped into institutional elected power and operated with such principle and grace and fierceness and compassion that is an honor to have back with us the one and only Rosanna Rodriguez. Blah, blah, blah. 
Alder Woman of the 33rd Ward is back with us. You are in the thick of it. You are dealing with all the folks. So in this time, and this is a loaded question, it's, it's our tradition. In this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Oh my God, it's so much right now. I am running for re-election and um, I have two challengers that are running on my platform, but they're men, so sure that they think they can do it better. <laughs> Even if it's my ideas, they, they, can, they can execute better these ideas of mine. Um, it is tough. I am very proud of the work that we have done. I am very proud that we have made ideas that seemed impossible four years ago, incredibly popular. I am so proud of the work that we have done with Treatment Not Trauma. I am so proud of the fact that we have brought more affordable housing to the ward. I am so proud of the fact that we are improving the schools in the community. I am so proud of having written the bodily autonomy sanctuary ordinance and the mayor of Chicago had to grab it and pass it within like two months of introduction, which is that has not happened like at all in city council. And she doesn't like me. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> it is it's, it's to say the least. Right. So to have done all of these as a rookie alderman that everybody thought that was, um, you know, a scrappy socialist that came in and didn't, you know, they, they thought she came here to yell at everybody and not do anything. And then, you know, finish my four years with such an incredible body of work, of evidence-based legislation, of incredible movement building and organizing in the ward, using our office in ways in which government has never been used. I am so proud of what we have done. And, I, and you know, I'm ready to protect this seed because this seed belongs to the people who have been building at every level to, to have a, a ward in a city that cares for everybody. So I'm not doing this alone. I'm good because I have a community um, that are that are doing the work with me. Um, but I am tired, I have to say. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. We'll get to all of the, the beautiful things that you just named. I want to stay in the tiredness and the campaign for a second. You know, there's the exhaustion of the runaround and logistics and campaign events and all that stuff. But where are you feeling this fatigue like in your body? Like where is this showing up in ways and how are you, is it just a race to the finish line and then you'll deal with these things? But like, like how is this showing up in you? I think I'm having trouble sleeping and I, I am normally like a sort of anxious person. I want to solve everything all the time and I'm always thinking about how, you know, we make things better, how do we solve this? And that sometimes keeps me up at night, you know. And when I don't sleep well, you know, that has consequences in everything that I do. So I feel like that that's the part that is is being the hardest, not being able to get consistent good sleep. And then I would say because of how hectic things are, like a lot of my routines have been interrupted. Um, so I, I don't get to like work out as much as I would like to. I'm walking a lot though, knocking on doors. So that probably like makes up for <laughs> <laughs> the working up that I'm not doing. But, um, you know, when I work out more intentionally, I think that I feel way better. It's very medicinal for me. So that part has been a little bit hard, but yeah. I want to, I want to stay there 
in 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 where your heart is and trust we'll, we'll get to the hard-hitting political questions <laughs> at some point and we'll, we'll talk about the, the coalition strategies but you know i think in so many ways watching and being connected to your administration you are embodying the, the strategy that so many folks have have hoped for of like how do we build power and actually be able to engage in the institutions that shape our spaces right and so you are sitting in this seat uh, but you also show up in the way that you just named and you are, are are working to propose really heroic solutions. And so within that, you're you're absorbing so much. You're 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 showing up to so many efforts that are encountering oppression. You are responding to so many tragedies. You're being attacked in not good faith ways. And as a, a loving human being that's taken on this big responsibility, what can you learn about? maintaining your heart space because you do this work with such passion so i know it has to be painful you made me cry <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm gonna cry too i promise before we get through this we, I, i'll be right there with you Damon, damon's got a tearjerker in the chamber don't worry it's coming <laughs> hi i'm tearing up already because it's heavy you know yeah one of the things that keep me grounded and being able to do this work is the fact that there are so many people doing this work with me at some point during the, the time that I have been in office, you know, we would have shootings and lose young people and then not have any resources to like support families. So we had to do it ourselves. But in, in the process of being in office, I have also developed these beautiful connections with organizations in the community that are doing that work. People who have lost children to gun violence, people that do these silent work that you don't promote that you don't post on Facebook you don't walk around with a camera you just go and sit down at the funeral home with the family and they bring food and you know they um, fill out never ending forms to get basic relief money to pay for a burial connecting people with therapeutic services after that are very scarce Ooh, that does something to you, you know? But the fact that I don't do that alone, the fact that I join forces with the people who are at the center of that pain and that have chosen to do the work to care for each other, that keeps me grounded. That keeps me able to do the work. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely takes a toll. But it's, it's the love that keeps you going. It's the love of the people around you. It's the love of the people that are committed to to, to care for, for each other. Yeah, I think that admiration, respect, and love that you just named, you know, as we were getting ready to talk with you today, Dave and I, we do our very extensive prep of 15 minutes of conversation <laughs> before interviews. And, you know, we were trying to figure out, like, what is it about talking with you, seeing your work that feels so different? You know, because there are other electeds who maybe have similar platforms or at least you know position themselves similarly to progressive politics or even radical politics but you know the difference between having that politic and really being connected to movement in the way that you are i think comes down to that kind of like deep respect and moving with love that you just named and so one just want to commend you and and just share that we see that um and two, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, Dane, this is the opportunity yeah, to talk was, a little bit about an yeah, example of, of that. Just, yeah. of, you know, I just want to thank you 
on a personal level, I've seen you show up. And so, you know, folks who have been listening to the show will know, but maybe there are folks who are just catching this episode, you know, in 2020 at the beginning of Uprising after the killing of George Floyd, uh, there was a lot of police violence going on. And I was one of the people that was hurt by that. I was with with some seriousness, you know, uh, um, abused and assaulted by the Chicago police and then arrested. Um, and it was in the, the midst of chaos. Um, and I was in the back of a police station, cuffed to a bench for many hours with my face bleeding. And then they stood me up in a hallway for about another two hours. And then I stepped around the corner of the hallway and could see the front desk of the station. And I saw you standing there fighting for me. <clears throat> This is the tearjerker, <laughs> for the record. And just in that moment, you know, um, one, I, you know, I want to articulate the gratitude, but in going back to, you know, I can feel it right now. That was a moment of relief. I was in the like the belly of the beast, unexpected. There wasn't no organized protest day. I didn't, you know, sign up and have my little care buddy prepared to go get arrested for a few hours. Um, I was just there to support and got hurt pretty seriously. And was listening to these dumbass cops talk for five hours. And I saw you there with your like city council badge <laughs> fighting to get access to me. Because for those who don't remember the context, because of pandemic, they were using that as a way to deny folks access to legal representation. So my lawyer was with, with you, another lawyer who I'm in a relationship with, and you were standing in the hallway and you were just assuring me that there are people here for me. And so one, I will never forget that moment. Uh, it, it meant a whole lot. Thank you very much. They weren't letting anyone into the building and you used your power to step past that obstacle. And because of that, I got out that night and they were not going to let us out. Um, and so two other people got out because of you. Yeah, we can talk more about it, but that really meant a lot to me. I am eternally grateful for, for, for you showing up to me in one of the toughest moments I've been through. So thank you a lot. Um. I, I mean, that was a very reciprocal moment, right? Like you were out there also showing up for everybody else. I mean, we have to show up for one another. And if we didn't come into the seat to show up for the people that are showing up out there, what did we come onto the seat for, right? Kickbacks. <laughs> That's a very go. clear answer for many people. <laughs> Small to medium bribes of eight to twelve thousand dollars is a very clear answer. You know, this is going to be in the 16th, 17th police canon, right? <laughs> I'm not saying you, you did. You, no, you, you. the other 36 or so, you know. <laughs> and the the century before. Yeah. Yeah, I'll speak to public record when, you know, Ed Berg is shaking down Burger Kings for $22,000. That's that's why that's an answer to that question. Why people take this yeah, exactly. But um, I do remember I do remember that vividly because I got there and they didn't want to let me in either. I had to go get my badge, which I brought on purpose because I don't really have an ID from city council that says alderman. I have a city ID that is golden. But it doesn't say alderman, right? So I brought my badge and then left it in my car. When I came in, your lawyer was outside with a couple more lawyers that have shown up for people and they weren't being let in. And then I went and got my badge and I was like, you need to let these lawyers in. They have a right to be represented. They need to talk to their lawyers. And then they did. 
that day also, I believe Jeanette Taylor showed up. Shout and out, I believe Jeanette that Byron, Byron also showed up. Byron Sexual Lopez also showed up that day. And then, you know, it became like the thing that we did that summer. <laughs> <laughs> then it became like, we. I, <laughs> I remember I was one night, I was just like, I went out like to hang out for like one night. And then I got the call and I was having like this dinner with somebody and like, just put a little bit of wine on a glass and I got the call. So <laughs> you have to come down to the station. And I was like, oh, sorry, if you want to keep hanging out with me, you're going to have to come to, you know. To Bring the wine. <laughs> just, just supports the party. That, <laughs> but yeah. So that, that was that was my summer. Yeah. 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 But we got to get you beepers like doctors on call have, you know. <laughs> but from that moment, you know, of responsiveness that shook our society and sh- so many of our lives, there was a political pivot. You know, campaigns were built to politically organize and educate and offer mutual aid to large swaths of the city to not just, you know, chomp on the edges of the tree of state violence, but to figure out how to really transform our public infrastructure. And so as part of people who, you know, created the campaign to that, <laughs> that was in response to this police violence, um, the, the intention was to create a context for you know, labor for elected officials and for organizations to build a, a, a true political platform to take resources away from a violent institution and reinvest them into community. Um, and so before this all started happening, I knew that you were diligently not just organizing, but studying and going to classes and doing case studies and exchange groups from all over the the, the hemisphere to really have a, a tangible and evidence-based and common sense is what I call it. People call it treatment, not trauma. I call it the common sense ordinance. Common sense <laughs> approaches to, to how to, to engage people in humanity, particularly those in the greatest need in the communities that are most divested from. Um, and so out of that moment, out of all the trainings we did, out of the continued protests, there was a launch of the treatment, not trauma ordinance that, you know, to this moment right now, as we're getting into election cycle, is for me the most important policy in discussion right now. Um, so yeah, I want you to, to talk about that that season of, I've been preparing, I'm here to do something. Now there's this pivot, people are getting hurt in the streets. There is all of this organizing happening. What do you do to write an ordinance? What do you do to bring people together? What do you do to now have this hashtag that is even beyond its political implications and people from other spaces are latching onto and are seeing this as a vision for the future? Relive us in that moment and then where do you see it now? At that moment, I had Kirsten Rocky as my chief of staff. We had been shout out, doing shout a, out Kirsten. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Kirsten. Um, at that point, I was a, like really a rookie alderman, like for real, for real rookie. I still didn't know exactly how to navigate all of the resources that there are in city council because when you come into office, nobody tells you how to do this job. There is not like a manual that people go like, well, this is how, this is what you do. <laughs> no, <laughs> you have to figure it out. And um, I had a lot of guidance from my person in city council, Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who taught me most of what I know. Uh, but at that point, I was still not sure about what resources I could actually use in city council without giving a heads up to the mayor about what I was up to. 
And that part is hard because the mayor has the power to kill anything that you introduce. If she knows what you're doing, she's going to be ready to kill it before you are able to even, you know, introduce it. Like you can't introduce it, but it's just going to go to the committee on rules and you're not going to you're not going to be able to do anything about it. So I sat down with my chief of staff and we wanted to be able to recreate the model of cahoots in Eugene, Oregon. We wanted to create a model that dispatch behavioral health workers and EMTs to address mental health crisis. But we knew that there was a fight in Chicago to reopen the public mental health centers. So we were like, this needs to be public and we need to use the mental health centers to be able to deliver this very necessary uh, structure of care for our communities. So we drafted it. We introduced it. We call it something else. We didn't call it treatment, not trauma. We didn't call it like anything. It was like the crisis response and care ordinance. I called the mayor. I gave her a heads up after I introduced it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that's more of a heads down. <laughs> that's not a heads up. <laughs> you gave her a call well, to talk. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, for sure. I just, I just didn't want it to I'm be joking. sent to yeah, rule. Yeah. So I just, so, yeah, yeah. so what I did, you I called in. her, I said, hey, I introduced this. I would like to work with you on it. The mayor, you know, like went into this speech about like who the co-sponsors are and why she doesn't work with each one of them and this one is a liar and this one is this and this one is that and I was like mm -hmm. I don't know what to tell you um, this is shocking news that shocking. The, the mayor would put his putty to people and doesn't enjoy working with them really it was yeah and then so the, the legislation that I introduced is called a council order and I did a council order and not an ordinance which have exactly the same weight after they are approved they are the law but a council order orders the administration to do something so because I knew that I needed a lot more research to back and, and a lot more groundwork to be able to understand how much it was going to cost and what it was going to take, what I did, I did a council order and I introduced it and I told the mayor, I am introducing this council order and I would like to work with you. And she said, I don't take kindly to orders. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's just what... <laughs> The legislation called. called. It's called. It's called a council order. Like I'm not telling. I'm not ordering you to do anything. But I'm just. I, it's just. It was really uh, bizarre. Uh, so man. then, um, before I introduced it, I talked to the collaborator for community wellness, and I started meeting with them about incorporating the public mental health centers into a council order about mental health crisis response. And then the treatment of trauma campaign was started. So at that moment, what we had in mind was we are having a, a huge opening right now to propose an alternative way to deal with things that the police are dealing with right now and take that from that uh, very oppressive institution and create an actual authentic structure of care that can help us care for people with the right tools. So that was really important for us, particularly at that moment because of the context in which we were living. But then it just took a life of its own. I have been organizing with Local Progress, which is a, a progressive organization at the national level that groups progressive local electeds uh, so that they can discuss policy together. And it provides a lot of opportunities for learning about what different people are doing in different places. So through Local Progress, I was able to travel to Colorado, uh, to see the Denver model, and I traveled to Portland to see the Portland Street Response Program. And then we have been in constant communication with uh, Albuquerque, which 
there's an article that just came out about their fantastic model that is actually publicly run. They created a whole department for it so that they were on even grounds with the police, which is so important. Yeah, it, it's been a it's been a long journey. I am incredibly proud that at this point, even though we haven't been able to have a hearing, treatment of trauma has become one of the most popular measures. And it's been discussed in mayoral forums everywhere, right? Like it's beautiful to see people who are aspiring to be mayor of Chicago discussing that this is an actual measure that can help us improve the lives of people. And I believe that we're going to get it. We're, we're definitely going to deliver this for, for Chicago. The way that you've championed that ordinance, but really like these ideas, I've watched you like really take this on, not as like a pet political issue, but as something that is consistent with the things you fought for your entire life. And so I'm wondering, you know, after a few years now of doing that from this seat, how have you seen different ways to bring people into understanding of the like validity and importance of this? What works, what doesn't work? Yeah. Can I add an addendum to that question? Because sure. I had a question similar, and I don't think you should answer two questions that are the same. <laughs> I, in that learning of what works, doesn't work, you're doing all this study of like behavioral health infrastructure around the country. So specifically, like that's not a thing that people have had a consciousness of, right? And so like, what have you learned in all that you learned about behavioral health as a, as a system? I didn't step on well, your question, did I, Daniel? Is that no, I, oh, I can answer okay. both. Right. Yeah, we just made it bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> difficult. I just want to yes. give it a go a little bit. You know. <laughs> uh-huh. I think what I have learned through this is that people care about one another, that when you present people the alternative to handle issues like mental health, substance abuse, intoxication, homelessness, when you present people with compassionate ways of ensuring people's well-being, most people are actually going to be down with it. People <laughs> care about one another. So I don't That's know. That's great news. I, <laughs> that is my, my findings yeah. from, my, yeah. from my research, say. And the research is actually we put it on the ballot in three different wards, right? We ask people do you want the city of Chicago to reopen its mental health centers and create a crisis response uh, system that will dispatch behavioral health workers instead of police? In the 33rd ward in the election in November, we got almost 93% of the vote. In the 6th ward, I believe it was 96%. 20th ward, it was 98%. <laughs> for an average of 97% of people said, yes, that actually makes sense. <laughs> you were sharing your data, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have solid data here um, about how people care about one another and want to see a different approach to meeting these kinds of needs um, where police is not used. And then um, in terms of what I have learned about the approach is that it works. So I can talk about some of the numbers from some of the models that I that I have visited. For Denver in particular, they have at this point responded with a pretty limited pilot. They have responded to about 6,000 calls. They have not have to call police for backup yet, which is a pretty impressive number. For Albuquerque, they have been responding to about 1,500 calls every month. They, at this point, have a force of about 54 
workers that are going out consistently every day, they have a 1% police backup call rate, which is also really good. I mean, what it tells you is that most emergencies you are going to be able to address without having to use police. But it also talks about the challenges that we face because we have defunded all of our structures of care and because we live in a system that relies on neoliberal structures, privatized structures that rely on exploited, underpaid and overworked nonprofit workers to be able to offer this care. And that is not sustainable. We also have very few resources to give people. So even if you have the response, which is something that is happening in Albuquerque, you can send the teams, you can work with them on site, you can try to connect them to different resources, but there's a limited amount of beds when it comes to shelter. There is not supportive housing. There is not same-day appointments for mental health, right? So we have to do more. Treatment Not Trauma is aiming to do more. Um, at this point, we have added to the mental health crisis response uh, model several other things that we believe that are really important in order to be able to have a comprehensive response. And one of them that I am really looking forward to having in Chicago is 24-hour walking crisis centers. Those are really important because people usually will end up either at the police station or at the ER when they are suffering a mental health crisis, and neither of those places are adequate. And I always like to bring this example I'm sure that you're familiar with Irena Chavez. She was a veteran, a queer Afro-Latina veteran who was suffering from PTSD. She went out with her friends one night. She got into an argument with the bouncer at the place where she was hanging out. The police was called on her. She was no threat to anybody. She was not armed. She told everybody that she was having a mental health crisis. She asked for her therapist to be called. She was put on a cop car. She was taken to a station. She was left in a holding room on her own. And when the police came back, she had taken her own life in the holding room. She shouldn't have been there. There is not one single reason why somebody that is very explicit about telling you, I am having a mental health crisis, I need help to be put in that situation. So we want to do better by people like Irene Chavez. Um, we want to make sure that we make people safe. And doing 24-hour mental health clinics is not actually something that would take a lot of resources. It would actually save a lot of money in the long term. Um, Can you elaborate on that a little bit when you say it saves money in terms of ER visits? Yeah. When you So when you have for example, somebody that is struggling with substance abuse, when you have somebody that is intoxicated, when you have somebody that is experiencing a mental health crisis or is experiencing homelessness and is dysregulated, the ER has very long waits. The ER is going to always prioritize some like the most drastic cases, right? They're going to prioritize people that are experiencing a very dramatic situation. ERs also don't really have the behavioral health supports that you need. The police station is no place for anybody. So 
making sure that you have a space where you can de-escalate, where you can feed somebody something, where you can make an assessment of what the needs are from human services, social services, uh, from a perspective of emotional, mental health supports. It's not rocket science, you know. You just need to make sure that you're staffing up the mental health clinics and creating capacity so that you can do that. And we already have across Chicago some programs like the living room programs. I have one in the ward, but it is open until five. So, so what happens at 9 p.m.? You know, where do we take somebody? And those spaces are equipped with a lot of different things. Like they, it has like a video game room. It has a TV. It has showers. It has washing machines. There's so many things and activities that somebody can do to de-escalate, to feel taken care of, to feel regulated, you know? a conversation, a meditation room. Like there's so many things that can be offered to somebody just to get them out of harm's way. And we're failing miserably at providing that kind of resource, you know? Yeah. The way you talk about it is so expansive. You know, I think from like a flat surface view, you could reduce this to a anti-police effort or a pro mental health advocacy effort but it's so much more than that in the 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 potential of tangibly but also in the imagination expanding what public infrastructure is you know i think when people hear mental health crisis they have a very particular image that is public that is intense that is something that's happening on the street and that is also something that is is real but mental health shows up in workplace conflict it shows up obviously in domestic violence it shows up in ways that aren't even externalized all the time right and so to have space to have staff that is publicly resourced and supported as an opening to what our city and society should be is so transformational and again i, I i've jokingly but seriously <laughs> called it the common sense ordinance because it, it it is just to me such common sense and now you have all of this evidence both you know, these trial runs across the country and then also, you know, electoral evidence in these three wards and something we've learned in some of our work. We're we're working on a show about guaranteed income pilots right now. And one of the things that's come up in that work is there actually is plenty of evidence that these things that are, are intended to invest in the people work and are good. But evidence seems to have little to no effect on the establishment or on opposition. And so, We could talk about it through the lens of treatment, not trauma, but I think we could also expand it to your overall experience in office of the bizarre, absurd, and then also like head in the sand position of the establishment and of the counter movement or the opposition to these liberatory uh, policies. What have you learned about them? Because evidence ain't really what they're looking for. They don't, they give a damn about your 97% turnout. They're going to keep saying the same shit. So they're not even going to read the report. (laughs) (laughs) But but you know what? I, I, yes to some of that, but once you start getting the public opinion on your side, they start paying attention and they are paying mm. attention now. And there are, okay. they. this is being brought up in this moral debates. So it's like, oh, but look, there is like this option here that we haven't looked at. <laughs> I wonder why we haven't looked at it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they are, they are talking about these things because we have made them incredibly popular and we have made them incredibly popular by doing a lot of education, by doing a lot of engagement. Like we knocked so many doors in order to be able to put this on the ballot and then getting out the vote for it and making sure that people knew that this question was going to be in their ballot. Um, 
Here in my ward, for example, I work a lot with our neighborhood high school and the civics program took on the campaign as their semester project. And they started going to the Brown Line, to the Kimball Brown Line every Thursday to talk to people about treatmental trauma. They had me several times in their classroom talk about it and why it was necessary. And they asked questions and they fell in love with the legislation. And then they became advocates for it in like, you know, 11th grade. So <laughs> I fell um, in love several times in 11th grade and none of it was with legislation. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're beyond. So shout here, out to them. You've like, grown. <laughs> these these <laughs> the kids are going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for shenanigans and drama. Not drama. I was... <laughs> <laughs> when I was on 11th grade, <laughs> we was trying to get into something, boy. <laughs> Shout out to the youth. <laughs> Got hope for the future. I ain't Dude, nail, we, should, we should have because they were amazing. Like, and they, they were so excited about doing it, too. You know, they were so excited about going and talking to the people that were leaving the train about, like, this legislation to send, you know, mental health care to, to mental health emergencies. I, I Yeah, that was really awesome, I have to say. Um so we have had to do a lot of work on that. Now, what you're saying about people, you know, not really giving a damn about like evidence. I, I have a really good story about that, if you allow me. Yes, please. Um, we had a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so at some point, not long ago, I you might remember that there was a young person that was shot at Millennium Park. And then usually what happens when we have a situation like this, there's a knee jerk reaction and you just have to do something so that people say, I did something. My colleagues were not really invested on actually doing something meaningful, right? The mayor wasn't either. They started talking about the curfew. So several of us went in and, you know, Carlos and I gather all of this evidence we look for papers and we send them like three different papers from three different universities that say curfews don't work these are alternatives <laughs> that you could use we knew that they were not even going to open the email so we printed them and we brought them and we put a copy of each one in each of our colleagues desks and then we talked on the floor and you know Matt Martin talked against it I talked against it I told them you have studies on your desk please look at that before you take a vote on this because there are alternatives that we could actually be using in order to prevent this from happening instead of doing this which actually does nothing and further you know punishes youth so most of the progressives spoke first and then we just had to listen to the old heads tell us, you don't know how to raise children. I always knew where my children were when they were growing up. You are enabling young people to behave wildly. They're wild. And then, you know, the, the debate closed <laughs> they, they with... Um, the, the more spanking legislations. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. No, yeah. And then, and then the last comment on that debate, while I was holding my evidence-based papers... You're such a nerd. <laughs> you know, I am here I holding my papers. <laughs> I'm here holding my papers. And this colleague of mine says... Um, my grandma used to say that after 10 p.m., the only thing open is liquor stores and legs. <laughs> and I am there with my papers like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, what am I doing in this place? <laughs> it's so bad. 
and they passed it. Well, maybe you should maybe you should invest <laughs> yeah, yeah. invest in overnight mental health clinics, and then they would be available yeah, after ten p.m. Oh, come, come on, come on. <laughs> I, I like this, Daniel. Yeah, <laughs> that was a good line. Yeah, and that worked, and, th- and that was the grand finale. That was their closing. Oh yeah, yeah. No, they saved they saved Chicago that day, um, as we all know. Um, but but that is kind of like the level of discourse that we have in in city council while we have a majority of people that are not really interested in taking on evidence based like they're not even gonna read it and that is a tradition in city council and the reason why it is a tradition is because most elders are gonna go in there and gonna do whatever the mayor tells them and this is how they have legislated they have never had the actual mission of researching things and see what is best for any they just okay what does the mayor want okay we'll we'll just do whatever the mayor wants Mm -hmm. and in exchange we'll be okay right like we'll we'll get whatever it is that we need in our in our wards so that so that's how it works i had a different Mm -hmm. question but that's such a that's such an interesting point to like sometimes it's not even about ideology right it's about like power analysis is, is what i see like it's less about what I agree on or like what argument I can make. It's like, no, what I am is an operative within a system and what is best for me. And sometimes it's not even selfish. Sometimes it's like what's best for my ward or maybe that's the justification is to cooperate with established power from top to bottom, right? So whether that's the president's office, whether that's Congress, right? Like I want to be on the side of the powerful and that's like the the, the driving factor, which is and then might have some bad politics and ideology on top of that, but it, but it feels more like yeah. that power analysis. No, no, you're you're totally right. But but it is also because the city of Chicago is the only mayor city in the United States that doesn't have a constitution. We operate on tradition, so mm. whatever whatever it is that we we'll doing. How did I not do. know that? Oh my god, <laughs> the city charter is just on a napkin somewhere in, in Bridgeport. It's a handshake. It's <laughs> yeah. a handshake. Berg has it. Berg has it somewhere. <laughs> and if you, you can see it, but you got to pay eight to twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> Meet me at Burger King. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Meet me in the but parking lot Burger King. And I'll give it to you. I remember after after Lori got elected, doing a little like like just out of curiosity, how does one impeach a Chicago mayor? And here's the answer. It is not possible to impeach a Chicago mayor. <laughs> yeah. There is no process. Yeah. It is not. There is no legal framework for how to do that. We don't uh, have a process for for most things, actually. Um, it, we operate. With, no, I swear. We operate on tradition. We don't have. Yeah. We don't have a, a city administrator, which is like a, a bunkers thing that we don't have. Somebody that actually works to have a a, a holistic sort of approach to administrating the city. It's crazy. When I got into office, so when you get into office as an alderman. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, whoever's listening. I was, I was hoping. I was hoping that you would say yes if I yeah, sneaked yeah. it like that. No, I'll, come, I'll come to the rally. I'll, sure, sure. You know, come, come on the podcast. When you future alderman listening, get into office. Not me. <laughs> I'm trying to curse and smoke weed in public. You know, I, that's, that's <laughs> Again, hasn't stopped many of those older. <laughs> I, 
I don't think yeah. that you know who is in city council. But when future listeners yes, get into city yes. council. If, you, if you're considering running for alderman, <laughs> let me tell you something. When you get into office, you essentially open a small business, right? Like you have to find an office and then you have to sign a lease on your name. It's not the city that does this. Like you have to do it yourself. Then you have to set up all of your utilities <laughs> with your credit card. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, that's why they're scamming. This makes sense. They, so they got a business, they got overhead. That's just... <laughs> and then you have to wait for the city to, um, to reimburse you. But if we had an, an administrator for the city, like we would have a, a different way of like dealing with all of this, right? Like we would actually have a specific process. We would have a city that actually does this work automatically, right? Like you, you just need a department to like take care of this and then you will have an office. But that's, that's not how it works. Um, and same with like all of the processes that we have, like the fact that the mayor is the one that appoints all of the chairs, we are an independent body. There is a separation between executive and legislative. We should be appointing our chairs, but the tradition is that the mayor appoints the chairs and then she consolidates power. Because it's tradition, most elders are going to go with that because it's convenient for them. And the ones of us that don't have committees, right? The ones of us that don't have double the staff, we just fight. Uh, or some of us fight the chairs to try to and the mayor and and their intergovernmental affairs team to try to get hearings scheduled. But it it is it's bonkers. Like the, the committee on rules, for example, what is supposed to happen is that every thirty days the committee meets and then they should get any legislation that is in the committee out to the corresponding committees. That doesn't happen. It's not touch. The only legislation that comes out of the rules committee is the mayor's legislation. If we send it to rules, she can get it out immediately. Or something that we fight really hard to get out of, of the rules committee. And the chair has established that in order to get it out of rules, you need 26 people to sign on to a letter just to discuss it. Not even to pass it. This is just to get it out of the of, <laughs> of 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 the void, you know. So all of that is part of the fact that we don't really have a structure in place that explains how the government needs to work. Yeah, it feels like we don't actually have a government. We have like three tiny dailies and a trench coat. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, if you're operating a city under your thumb and you're the one making the process and you have power for decades, it's not in your interest to create democratic processes, right? And so now you have, you know, people like you attempting to do democratic process in a body that wasn't built for that. You're going to come up against that. But that kind of makes sense politically to me. Yeah. Or just like, I, I don't want people to miss that point either of the committee appointment of like, that would be like if the president appointed all of the committees in Congress. And yeah, you know. at the Congress level, you have speakers, right? right. You, you have leaders. And 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 so you, you do it at, uh, as well at, in Springfield at the state level. And those bodies are independent, not in the city of Chicago. The city of Chicago is such an like incredibly interesting yeah. place. And it's one of the reasons why it has been so corrupt, right? Yeah. If if you can't actually have that kind of independence. And then when when there are people like me 
that are going to come in and are going to be independent and are going to say exactly what they think and are going to demand that the structures work as they're supposed to. They just look at you like, are you insane? <laughs> Where did you come from? What? And it's the reason why I'm being fought really hard right now. You know, like I have two challengers and one of them is being funded and, and propped by the person that was in the seat before, which is Dick Mel. What an aldermanic name. <laughs> right, right. But he was the chair of the committee on rules for a very long time. So people that are incredibly corrupt are coming after me because they don't like what I'm doing. The go along to play along part that everybody just just does so to preserve the peace. We, we didn't do that. At some point, there was an article, I think it was in the Tribune, maybe a journalist asked some of the elders that were running for higher office in November, why did they think that there was this exodus? Because there's a lot of elders that have decided to transition out. And George Cardenas, who is also behind one of the guys that is running against me, George Cardenas is one of the most morally bankrupt elders that have ever passed through city council. He said, uh, it's not fun to work here anymore. <laughs> and and when and I read that quote and I'm like, our our job here is done. Our job here is done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that it, it was, was fun. <laughs> it was fun, but now these people came in here yeah. and like, what? I have to work? What? <laughs> I'm not done with this. They call it demons. So, they want us to read <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So he so he went to the board of review. He he ran for the run of review and now he is a commissioner of the board of review, which is apparently that's more fun um we'll, <laughs> we'll see with time <laughs> yeah but to that point of the like entrenched power backing these oppositions you know the names that we're naming are not like flash in the pan political figures here you know the dick mel's and the ebb burks and the cardinals of the city these this goes back decades this is just a little side note for our, like chicago historians um Mel was one of the aldermen in opposition to Harold, um, and that was the power base that created the council wars. And if you want to learn more about that, there was a really good documentary that we watched recently. I'm trying to remember the name. Punch oh, Nine. Punch Nine. Um, <laughs> so that breaks down some of that. And then also Fire on the Prairie is a really good description. And that was where, you know, obviously it's a different era, but it really crystallized for me, like some of the absurdity, dysfunction, and then like, honestly violence of how people relate to each other in that space. How has the opposition presented itself in the way that the public should know? Because I think part of their attacks, whether they are uh, violent or covert, is about doing it in the shadows. And so what, what do you want people to know about how the egregious ways you are opposed? Oof. <laughs> it is kind of clownish in ways. I think it it comes a lot from like egos and people clinging to power. Uh, so Dick Mel, who was a member of the Verdoliac 29, he was one of the white aldermen that opposed everything that uh, Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, tried to do for the first year. At some point, Harold just found a way around this terrible group of alders that were not letting him govern. But Dick Mel was one of those infamous people. And that's how he operated through the 38 years that he remained on that seat. After he retired, he retired midterm and passed the seat on to his daughter. And you might think, how do you pass the seat to your daughter? <laughs> well, 
So what you do is that you have a really good relationship with the mayor of Chicago. When an alderman retires, guess who appoints the new <laughs> alderman? It's the mayor. So he went and talked to Ram and he was like, yeah, you know, um, I, I would like my, my daughter. I want to pass the small business down to my daughter. It's the American dream, you know. <laughs> it's the American dream. <laughs> exactly. So, so. So then Ram Emanuel did like a little song and dance and said, we're going to have interviews to like find the best candidate. <laughs> and then Big Mel's daughter went an interview and there's, oh, she it's, blew it's the away. Mel. She is the most qualified. And I mean, she has the last name. <laughs> yeah, they don't even so have to she... change the signage. It's helpful <laughs> that way, you know? So, I, yeah, that that's true. That's true. There were savings. Um, so so she ended up in the seat for six years. So in total, the Mel family ruled the 33rd ward for 44 years. And one of the things about somebody like Dick Mel running the ward is that first, he was a committee chair. If you're a committee chair, you not only have your ward staff, you also have your committee staff. And the committee staff is basically double the staff of your office. That means that a lot of my colleagues that are committee chairs use the committee staff, which doesn't work a lot because we don't really have a lot of committee meetings. Um, so you use it to double the staff in your ward, which means that you can provide way more services. The other thing is that people like Dick Mel receive a lot of contributions from so many different people and spaces, right? So people like us, we don't take corporate money, we don't take real estate money, we don't take developer money, right? So when you don't take that kind of money, your political... Um, you have less money. <laughs> you're going to have way less money. Yeah. So in some ways, whenever Dick Mel needed to provide services that the city didn't have the capacity to provide, he could just buy them. So then you end up with an alderman that doesn't really do much at the legislative level, but will provide a certain part of the population with excellent ward services that are paid by corrupt money and the illegal use of the staff in the committee that you're not supposed ever to use for your ward services because those are two different bodies, right? That is a model that has been repeated. When somebody like me comes into office and you don't really have a committee appointment or that kind of political money, you have to contend with the reality that the city is understaffed, that departments are operating at 40% capacity because they have been defunded. Departments like streets and sanitation, for example, you know, transportation, like you don't really have the, the bandwidth in those departments to do services as fast as everybody wants them. Now, because Chicago is such a segregated city and there is so much racism, a word like mine that has a decent amount of wealthier white people, we are six in terms of speed at which ward services are provided. If you compare that with anywhere in the South and West Side, it's going to be stark, the difference. But to, to land that point is that despite the fact that it's the sixth quickest because of the demographics of the ward and the expectations of having had that type of corrupt service, there's this, uh, you know, there, there's, there's this pushback to it. No, don't get me wrong. Like we work really hard to make sure that people get the services that they deserve. Like we really want to serve the people well. It would be great if the whole city was served 
with the same experience, right? And I don't yeah. really know what the rest of my colleagues do in their offices. I have no idea. I do know that most of my peers, like Carlos, Maria, Andre, all of us are basically on the same bracket of the speed at which we provide services. And we have very similar models of operation in our in our ward offices and the same, basically the same amount of staff. So I think that we have developed a way to, to be able to do that. I thought the other day that it would be super interesting to do like a like a like a research project where somebody goes <laughs> to each Aldermanic <laughs> office and just sits there like for I don't know for half a day and you watch what happens in an Aldermanic office and then compare how Aldermanic offices provide services because I'm pretty sure that there are aldermanic offices that might not really be open all the time. There might be aldermanic offices where who knows what happens, how much staff they have, because you get to decide how much staff you're going to have. You could have one and pay them a lot and just do a PR alderman office, you know. One, that's great. Ergo should invest in some investigative journalism and just send somebody around and do an automatic tour. Do it, do it, do (laughs) it. Yeah, we need some funding for that. Um, I've worked with your with your office and I've seen internally that and we don't you know we don't got to go into detail but I've seen internally that you are working to apply these notions of care of transformation of restorative healing even within the the structure while also taking very seriously that you have services to provide and like people care way more about their garbage or potholes or the construction on the street than, you know, these big decade long political trajectories that most people aren't even paying attention to. So, so that is something that you're navigating and doing and you do it with such grace and groundedness. And you also show up in all these other ways that we've talked about. Is there anything from your work as an organizer, whether back on the Island or even here in the city that at the time you didn't see it, but looking back on it, like prepared you to be so grounded in this role? Is there any like pre just movement work doing it from the ground that you see now? Like, oh, that is the seeds of how I'm able to carry all these things, run a staff, govern an award, and also be at the forefront of these really courageous political fights. There are so many. I feel like I have had so many lives at this point. (laughs) I was talking about it with somebody the other day because I... For a while, I made a living singing in Puerto Rico, and I was just remembering, like, I was just, (laughs) I was just remembering that time, and I'm like, Jesus, I have had so many lives, so many, (laughs) so many lives. Um, I have to ask. There's a a follow up here. What type of music we talk in? What types of places we play? What's the artist name? I'll send you the link to Spotify, Spotify, so you can listen to it. It'll be the outro music. Can we can we have permission to use the music? Is it the outro? Sure, sure, yeah. Hey. Good, I can get my permissions cleared. Look at that. If it was only so easy. Um, uh, we we did Afro Afro Puerto Rican music mostly, and it's it's really beautiful. It's a fusion. Um, I think you're gonna like it. Um, I grew up in Puerto Rico, in the east coast of Puerto Rico, um, and I grew up in a in a neighborhood that has a lot of resources. But we didn't have water for for a very long time. The water from the river that was supposed to serve us was redirected to go to a Navy base in a nearby town. The Navy base was being used to bomb one of our island towns for military practice for the United States. So not only we didn't have water, but the water that was supposed to go to us for our use was being used to harm one of our, our island towns. 
so that was a, a pretty you know um yeah, intense <laughs> in, intense um reality for a six-year-old to like yeah. grow, grow up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> too and my father was a community organizer so i learned very early you know that if we wanted to be able to have access to the resources that belong to us we were still going to have to fight for them because of imperialism because of colonialism those resources were in our land like we had a river that was supposed to give us water but it was taken from us you know i think that that was the seed of of everything so there was fight and then there was also celebration at the same time that we were fighting to get our water back we organized to create uh, a festival, the Breadfruit Festival in, in our community. And the Breadfruit Festival became a super well-known festival that everybody from the whole island would come to. And that was put together by my community. And it was such an incredible experience because we would actually cook the food ourselves. We actually like went and get the breadfruits from the woods and then we would bring them and we would do these like assembly lines and we would cook with the elderly women in the community and, and we would make all of this food and then we would cook it during the festival and there was a lot of music and there was a lot of cultural activities and that was um, how I spent my summers in Puerto Rico. The togetherness of it, right? The doing something because we want to be able to enjoy it. How do we create a community that belongs to us and that we belong to, you know, a space of care for everybody? I think that that definitely informed the rest of my life. Then after that, you know, I... Uh, when I was in college, I had to fight against privatization and neoliberalism in Puerto Rico when they tried to privatize our public telephone company. And that was a huge fight. And it, there was a national strike. And we shut down the University of Puerto Rico. And then we had to shut it down many other times because of tuition hikes. Uh, we had a, a, a student front against privatization. Then I became a teacher. I had to be on strike for budget cuts. Um, so it, it just has been fight, fight, fight all the time. Yeah. With a little bit of music in there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fight, fight, fight has, has also been a um, joyful fight. You know, the yeah. fight, fight, fight has been building these communities of care, the having solidarity. Because when they were going to privatize the phone utility, I was like 18. It was my first encounter with neoliberalism. And because of my fight for water, I was really aware that the telephone company belonged to us. It was a public good. And just like the water that was taken from us, it was a public good and it worked. The workers had great benefits and salaries and it was affordable and it was profitable for the government. But there was the AT&Ts and the Verizons and all of these other companies that were just waiting there like, oh, there's a, ma a captive market, you know, like we need to undo this government monopoly that is taking all these profits from us. And finally, they did sell it and it was a huge painful loss for our communities but the process of fighting for it also helped us develop a lot of consciousness in that fight i feel like i found a lot of humanity in that picket line like i slept on those gates you know and i i have a story that i want to tell and I, I hope that you're going to indulge me here because it no, was we're here we're not I, going I, 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 we don't have any doors to knock you know <laughs> <laughs> <We're good. laughs> there was something really important that happened in that strike that I think transformed um, 
my understanding of humanity and all of these contradictions that we have in the struggle. I was 18 and I was in this picket line every day. And there was this guy who was one of the telephone company employees um, who was always like, you know, saying stuff to me, like trying to flirt with me, but in a way that was very aggressive. So he would always be like making comments about my body. And I was really uncomfortable. I was I was 18. So I would just try to ignore it, which is what we're taught to do when that kind of stuff happens so that you can keep yourself safe. You just like ignore, ignore, ignore. And at some point, I remember being at the picket line and he had the megaphone and he started like saying things through the megaphone that I knew were directed at me. He didn't say my name. I knew that they were directed at me because he would say those things to me when I went by him. And I was just like, what the, like this is just so horrible. Like I feel so harassed. Then one day we are in the front of the gates and we hear that the cops are coming with um, scabs and are trying to come through the gate in the back. So all of us start running to the back and all of our comrades were sitting down in front of the gate, linking arms, and they were not letting the police go through. So the police just like, on, on, it was unleashed, right? Like they just mazed everybody. Like there was, you know, tear gas. They started beating people. We got in. We started trying to protect the people that were already, you know, getting beat up. There was so many people. One of the telephone company workers got like dizzy and fell. In all of the commotion, like nobody was seeing him. And I was really worried people were going to stomp on him. So I started trying to bring him up. And this other comrade, like one of my, my friends, uh, another woman, helped me bring him up. And we are like yelling to people, like, help us because he's unconscious at this point. And then some people start yelling, he's dead. And it was it was just like a lot, you know. I was able with some other people to like bring him up. And then we handed him to other comrades that were trying to get him to an ambulance. And the police was not letting them through to the ambulance. It was like a whole thing. The man who was yelling at me the whole time and saying these horrible things to me had been looking at what had been happening. So I walked past him and he says to me, good job comrade and I had a moment because I wanted to punch him in the face <laughs> but I said I hope that this moment makes it reflect on the fact that I didn't come here to you know to entertain you I am here for the same reasons that you're here to defend this thing to defend your job to defend this for all of us and from that day on, this man called me comrade every morning. He called me compañera every morning. And we became friends. And it's one of the most transformative experiences that I have had in struggle. I will never forget it because I was really angry at him. And all of a sudden, through struggle, through making sure that there was an understanding of what was going on, he started seeing me as his equal. And I'm not saying that you have to do all that to like be respected. I'm saying this is the effect that struggling together and showing solidarity in a space where, you know, he was like, oh, she came here. She's a cheerleader, you know. No, I'm not. I'm here fighting for this thing that belongs to all of us. 
And he eventually respected me a lot for it and apologized to me. And that's just, you know, one of my favorite things that has ever happened. <laughs> in I was really young too, you yeah. know, so to have that happen and get that kind of respect, like at 18 or 19, like it was, it was a really big thing. That's so formative. It's such a, a, a dynamic and beautiful story. And you named it, but just want to like say out loud, like one, I commend you again for this long history uh, of grace. But yeah, you shouldn't have to endure harassment in the name of transformation. And so just as seeing similar stories, I don't know our age difference, but in a different era and seeing those things continue, I don't want to valorize folks transforming while harming people and being harassed. So I know you said that. Obviously, you know, I was just saying that for the listeners who might like get too cute with that story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no I am very aware that I shouldn't have gone through it. Yeah. People are where they're at, though. Right, you know, right, like people right, are right, where right. they're at. It could have also been that that never happened, that he never got like an experience where he could actually be like, oh, oh, this is what's happening here. Okay. And, and it transformed everything, you know, at that moment. That. It transformed everything for me, too. And it, and it had to do with the fact that I was there in solidarity with people that were fighting for their rights and for their jobs. And so, yeah, no, I am not advocating for... for <laughs> you are not. You are not. I was saying no. it. Um, I, it was I beautiful to see a transformation. Yeah. Though. It was... It's a beautiful story. And I'm proud of you in that story. You're a superhero in that story. Like, I... <laughs> As you were telling, it was like the animated version, like the animated flashback, and you're like <laughs> saving the guy. I, no, I see the whole thing. That's that's amazing. Like hoisting over <laughs> your head. And I was like, damn. <laughs> um, so yeah, as we're winding down, one, we want folks who are hearing this to activate. So if there's any ways to volunteer, or if you have family members or loved ones in the 33rd ward, send them this episode, send this conversation, learn more about the phenomenal all the woman that is Rosanna Rodriguez. <laughs> um, but many people will be listening to this months and years from now. And so I want to invite you to, to share with people, what do you think is important about this political moment? Because as you kind of alluded to, you exist in a context. We talked to candidate Brandon Johnson for mayor. We've shouted out Carlos. We've shouted out Jeanette Taylor. This is a, a, a really dynamic political moment for you as such a, a central player and role in this time. How should people understand it? I think what's important about this political moment is that we have been able to learn how to use institutional power to serve the movement on the ground. And also we have gotten a taste of what it can be when we use government and government structures to actually serve the people. And I want to say this. I have been able to use my office in ways that I don't believe that municipal government has ever been used. You know, we we have, for example, a ward superintendent um, that is assigned to our ward. We get to hire that person. We make sure that that person that is out there that needs to be just doing the work of like streets and sands is also checking on neighbors that live in buildings that are owned by slumlords and bring those cases to us so that we can advocate for them, right? that are watching out that there is no ice in our communities, right? And, and talking to neighbors on the ground that might be undocumented and don't know that they can actually come to our office to get certain services. We have democratized processes like, you know, participatory budgeting. We have created community-driven zoning process so that people have actual 
power over how our communities are developed so that we can prevent gentrification and we're not taking contributions from like the the slimy real estate industry so that they are the ones that can run those processes, which is what we have had up until now. So I think the possibility of using electoral politics as a tool without losing sight that we need to be building on the streets, that we need to be building on the ground, and that we could have to continue to radicalize our visions. You know, the reason we have treatment of trauma is because we have been thinking about abolition. It's because we have been fighting for all of these things that we've been imagining what it can be like if we actually have the proper structures of care that we need. So we are using our institutional power to support those visions, and we want to continue to do that. If we're not on the seat, we just don't let them govern as they have, because now we, ha we have built that power as well. So I do want people to join us. I do want people to build with us. I want more co-governance. I want more participation. I want us to be righteous and unapologetic on the things that we want to get out of government. So come join us. We, we're going to wait for you right here. Where is there? How can folks find you and your campaign and the ways you all want to be found? Our, our office is at 3248 West Montrose Avenue. Uh, we have canvases every day from 5 to 7 p.m. And there's always going to be somebody here in the office. And on Saturdays and Sundays, we are here at 10 a.m. What about online? Is there anywhere folks should uh, support, donate, all that type of stuff? Thank you, Daniel. Um, you can go to <laughs> Rosana, R-O-S-S-A-N-A, 433.org. And over there, you're going to see all of the things that we have done, accomplished, and then how you can support us. Yeah, so I just want to close again with saying thank you. Um, thank you for showing up for me. You've invited me to classes and you've invited me to virtual events you've done for your award. You've invited me to work with your staff. Um, but, it, you know, your, your greatness goes beyond just the ways that it benefits me. James is trying to get booked, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, I, I've, I've seen and observed and witnessed the way you've sacrificed, the way you've pushed, the way you've fought, and you've done it all with such a beautiful spirit and love for people and commitment to some deep principles and have stayed really grounded. So thank you so much for what you've done so far. Um, you got people who are watching and people who are with you, um, and it has made our visions that much more real. And so just for getting us this far, I want to commend it and document the work that you've done, but you have so much more work to do and you got support from us. So thank of you course. for your time, but more importantly, thank you for your work and spirit. Of course. So I mean, mostly I'm... I'm just so salty. I'm not in your ward anymore. Yeah, redistricted. For those out. who, yeah, we, I got. You know what? It's in. It's it's to some good to some good efforts. But I, I got bounced. I'm on the other side of the line of the where, where the war got moved. So now I feel like you know we can speak freely because I'm no longer a constituent. You know, <laughs> you can be my constituent and we can speak equally freely. But I just want you to know that I didn't do that. I, that's all I'm gonna say. No, I know, no, no, I know. <laughs> I, you know, I took it so personally because, you know, as the alderman, a single alderman has the power to redistrict the whole city. So I, I knew you just tried to get me out. You, you should. I, I would highly recommend looking for a place in Albany Park. It's really nice in Albany Park. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time, your generosity, all that you do. Um, yeah, we'll be back on the line, reshaping the culture of our city for the more liberatory and creative. Much yes, love, to the people. love you guys. Peace. So much love. Peace.
puente de mi calle, de la calle de los sueños congelados, del insomnio cuando hablamos de futuro, de los carritos de supermercado. Déjame que te hable de mi calle, del lugar más amado y más odiado, del dolor que sostiene en sus aceras, del castillo con perfume. 